Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily. This is your host, Trevor Hall. Thank you so much for tuning in today and all the episodes that we publish throughout the week. Lots of content again this week. Put out a number of corporate updates, both Paul and I from a couple various junior explorers out in the market and some obviously some great macro content as well we're going to continue the discussion on the back of the big moves in precious metals today first having a conversation with don Durrett of goldstockdata.com talking about the fed inflation and really this move in precious metals and maybe how you why you should be a little bit concerned of because gold's obviously getting a little bit overbought here so let's see how things play out a great conversation with don and then we turn to returning guest somebody we haven't had on the show for quite some time she was one of the original uranium investors that i had ever known from like way back when four or five years ago fabiana laura she's living in portugal now we connect first time in quite some time to talk about her position in uranium what's she doing now with these big moves and it's just a great conversation to have fabi back onto the show special thanks to corvus gold rio 2 western copper and gold and integra resources for your continued support of the podcast if you have any questions for me always feel free to drop me a note via email trevor at clearcreekdigital.com so we're going to jump into my conversation with Don Durrett. It's a pretty lengthy conversation. Then on to Fabi. Have yourself a great weekend, everybody. Be safe, be healthy, be well. Welcome in, everybody, to our first segment of our Friday morning long-form episode here on Mining Stock Daily. Trevor Hall here, welcoming in a returning guest, somebody that we speak to a couple times a year. But, you know, it's important that we get Mr. Don Durrett back here on the show because, you know, Don, it feels... This move in precious metals, we just, you know, let's stick with gold. This is It was a good week for gold. Um, you know, it busts through that uh, resistance 1835-ish. We are at currently recording here Thursday afternoon after the market closed, currently about 1865. Uh, so it's a good solid move, arguably a breakout here. Do you have any concern with this move in gold this week? Um, yeah, absolutely. I have concerns, but let's, let's talk about it a little bit. Uh, first of all, Trevor, thanks for having me back. You're one of my favorite podcasts to be on. I really enjoy being on your show. Thank you. So, yeah, so 1865. So, I, you know, I, I follow this stuff daily, of course. Um, if you look at the technical chart on gold, um, basically it created a flag since going all the way back to the top in August of 2020. And that flag, the bottom of the flag, it touched 1683 times on the weekly. And once we got to uh, September of this year, I started getting really bullish that that 1680 was going to hold because of the price action. What we were seeing in September was that when the market was going down, gold was actually getting a bid. That was a great sign for gold. So that basically told me that this flag is really indicating a breakout. 
And today's uh, move at 1865, I mean, if you look at the flag, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of technical people out there that are saying, this is it, we're, we're, we've broken out. You know, really confident, right? But it's not, but not so fast, right? It's not so fast. We, we still have to uh, deal with the banksters. The banksters are going to defend this. Uh, they don't want gold to, uh, you know, we've been in this rinse and repeat, you know, for the last 13 months. You know, we go up. You know, we've been here before. We've been in 1865 before. We've been over 1900 um, during this 13-month correction, and then the banksters come in and you know beat it down. Um, we actually we went above 1900, and they pushed it all the way down to 1680. So you know, it's, it's it, they're gonna they're gonna hit it. So we we need, but it looks great. I mean, if you, like I said, technically, if you look at the, that flag, it looks fantastic. But there's a lot of issues around gold here that you know we can't. Uh, basically get out to champagne yet um i think you know i'd like to see um an eight get stay above 1850 through tomorrow's close and then stay above 1850 all next week and then you know it starts to get a little exciting but we have to we have to break out above 1950 so we still have a you know a you know 90 dollars more to go before we can really break out the champagne it's early innings there's a lot of other factors that impact gold we'll talk about that yeah, I mean, we're talking, what, six days in a row with a nice green candle. Uh, we talk quite a bit here on the podcast, Don, about really pulling that chart back and getting rid of the daily volatility and looking at the weekly and the monthly stuff. You know, when we see that, obviously, we're this week looks pretty good. We don't know what the next couple of weeks in November will have in store for us. But we got to see something on a monthly close. You know, how... You know, are you what do you what are you keen on? If we look at a monthly close here at the end of the month, what is uh, what is that kind of technical spot you'd like to see us close at or above? Uh, I everything I just said, I, I would basically reiterate eighteen fifty to nineteen fifty, and, and yeah, a monthly close would be fantastic. Uh, I like to see two weekly closes in a row, which usually indicates a monthly as well. But you know, I want to get you know eighteen fifty to nineteen fifty. That's kind of your excitement zone. It's like that's the danger zone for the banksters. They don't want to be in that. They have a comfort zone. You know, their comfort zone is below 1850. Actually, their comfort zone right now is below 1825. Um, and, you know, they're out of their, they're kind of, you know, they're nervous. And, and so they're going to they're gonna defend their, their danger zone. They know these things. But let's talk about some of these other factors that either are going to have gold break out or not. And there's a ton of them, right? Right. Um, so first thing we have, probably the biggest thing is inflation, right? Inflation is the reason why we're at 1865. Um, inflation's been high and, and, you know, gold's getting a bid here. But inflation on its own cannot push gold above 2000, I don't think, unless, you know, inflation goes higher. So we're right, right now we're at uh, CPIs at like 5%. I mean, we go to 6 7%, you know, maybe. But... Um, you know, I really want to see gold trend, you know, from for all time and new high, which is 2075, you know, all the way to 22, 23, 2500. That's what I want to see. I don't want to go, you know, OK, we, you know, inflation pushes up to 2000 and then it gets pushed back down to 1900, you know, um, because the other factors are in play. So inflation's great. Inflation helps. 
But the real key thing, and I've been talking about this all year, is the risk on trade, the stock market. So the stock market right now is still strong. I mean, S&P closed, you know, 4649 today. It's, it's basically all, all three, the major indexes are basically the all-time highs. The risk on trade hasn't ended yet. That is where gold goes to 22, 23, 2500. That's what I want to see. So I, I said that, you know, the risk on trade, uh, I didn't expect it to end until at the earliest was September. And we did see a 5% sell-off in September, but it got bit, it got, it got a bid and, and they bought it all the way back, you know, in late uh, September, mm -hmm. early October, the market was really strong um, and throughout October. And so that basically is not good for gold. Um, so this could be another rinse and repeat where gold gets pounded down because the, the, the risk on stays strong. But I'm seeing, um, in addition to inflation, I'm seeing a lot of factors that improve Imply that the stock market is topping here and that this this risk on trade is going to end um, might be ending as we speak. I thought we would have another correction in November. Um, November's not over. November, December, I'm expecting another one. And we'll see what happens if the market gets a bit or not, if I'm right about the topping process. And, you know, I, I'm really bearish for 2022 for the markets and for the economy. Bullish for gold. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Right, so tell me, what are these technicals you're seeing here that you think could be signs of a topping pattern in the general stock markets? Yeah. So if you look at 2007 and eight, um, the economy at that time uh, kind of went into crisis mode. Um, you know, Lehman Brothers basically blew up and then everything started breaking down. At that time, we did not have high inflation. We did not have high debt. We did not have supply supply issues. We did not have, you know, empty shelves. We didn't have an energy crisis. None of that stuff, 2000 and 2008. This economy that we're in right now is a lot weaker than it was 2007, 8. And so when we went into that recession in 2008, it didn't last very long. We got to mid-2009, the recession was over. We were back working, everything was back to normal. That's not the case now. Now things are really, really warped, right? Supply chain, the supply chain's broken right now. It's not getting better. We have a food crisis. It's, it's breaking out right now as we speak. I think, you know, we have double-digit inflation in the three biggest things that we have to have, right? We got food, we got energy, and we got rent. All three are double-digit inflation right now. That's, that's off, you know, that's, you know, that's significant. And so how much longer can Wall Street ignore this stuff? And then, then I mean, you know, we got these negative, these huge negative rates, which should be a big, big flashing red sign for Wall Street. We've got, um, you know, uh, 1.1 percent to 1.5 percent um, interest rates, and we have 5 percent um, inflation. So that means the bond buyers, the bond holders, are basically taking it on the chin. I saw it today. Larry Summers basically, you know, Larry Summers is really a Wall Street guy, and he's basically saying, you know, you guys need to clean up your act. This thing is, you know, he's he's getting nervous. Um, you know, when Summers is getting nervous, you know, there's a problem because he's usually a mainstream dude. So that's that shows you um, people are starting to get nervous, um, and it's across the board these things. 
um, that's why I'm basically saying we're topping here because all of these all of these data points are pointing to um, you know significant crisis. People say we're returning to normal economic. I mean, I mean that's what Wall Street is is basically saying. You know, that's that's what Powell is saying. That you know, this is inflation is transitory. It's mainly mainly supply chain issues. That's total you know baloney. He's increased the money supply by 40%, and he doesn't want everybody looking at that. Um, MMT is, you know, that whole philosophy is how we're running our economy right now. So we cannot increase interest rates. Higher interest rates in MMT do not work. Um, it's all about injection. So if you increase the inflation, in, in, if you increase uh, interest rates, that slows the economy and starts creating a crisis. So... Uh, you know, data point after data point says we should be we should be topping. Don, let me constructively uh, push back on a little bit of this. I absolutely agree with you. There's issues with supply chains, obviously higher prices and inflation. We're even seeing somewhat of an energy crunch on a global scale. We have seen this, but what hasn't necessarily what I'm seeing hasn't really dwindled is demand. We still continue to see strong demand despite supply chain crunches, despite higher prices at the counter. But I'm wondering if, you know, is this just emblematic? Is this the demand that was created by the Federal Reserve because of the injection of new money into the system recently or over the last 10 or 15 years? And what do you, you know, with that demand, it just seems like the economy continues to run hot, but almost too hot. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good point. And I think Wall Street, that's one of the things that Wall Street and most of your mainstream economists, um, they're kind of zeroing in on that, on that, those data points, that demand and consumer spending is still strong. But it's, a, it's an illusion. Um, and the illusion is that most of this money, if you will, is printed money. We expanded the money supply by 40%. We basically liqu liquefied the economy. Um, but um, the middle class is not keeping up. The middle class is getting hollowed out. It's basically a Potemkin uh, economy. It's, it's a facade. You know, it, it appears that, you know, uh, you know, all of these big you know, tech companies are, are having good earnings and they're making lots of money. But if you look at the, um, the S&P 500 and you look at the average company, the average company is struggling. Uh, small businesses are struggling. It's just, you know, the, there's, you know, overall, yeah, some of the big companies are making profits, but it's not a healthy economy at all. Um, you know, if you look at, you cannot have double digit inflation on the, on the households. You know, 50% of households are living paycheck to paycheck. Um, if you look at double digit inflation, you're looking at, you know, somewhere around an additional $6,000 of additional um, inflation. If you look at the big three, I did the math on it. Uh, you know, where are they going to get an extra, you know, 500 bucks a month? Where are they going to get an extra six grand a year? Um, things are, the next year is going to be, you know, crisis city, I think, if inflation stays where it's at right now. And I think it is. And so it appears that the economy is somewhat vibrant. That and, and, and if you look at GDP, GDP, the only reason why GDP is positive is because we count government spending as part of GDP. 
which is ridiculous when you have a deficit of 2.7 trillion last year, 2.7 trillion deficit. So that 2.7 went to GDP, but it was all printed money. It's totally ridiculous. I mean, I, I wouldn't. They they need to come up with some type of formula where maybe twenty five percent of government spending, um, you know, is going to GDP. But when you just flat out print it, um, you know, that's not because GDP is basically supposed to be real, um, real money, real um, after inflation money. You know, we have GDP growth is it's not nominal. It's basically real. So we have right now we're at you know. Last quarter, we were like, you know, I don't know, 1.5 percent or something real GDP growth. Well, how in the heck can you have real GDP growth when your GDP is and when your deficit spending is printed money, 2.7 trillion? You know, it's it's not that's what it's not a real economy. Um, so, you know, the key thing in here is, is really MMT. So, you know, what is MMT? Modern monetary theory. Um it's basically this idea that if you keep the economy injected with liquidity and you prevent any type of liquidity crisis, basically, you basically bail out the stock market, you bail out corporate bonds, you bail out government bonds, and you keep everything liquefied. And that basically pre prevents um, a recession. Janet Yellen, when she was the chair, said there will be no more recessions. Basically, they drank in the Kool-Aid that they can just use MMT to keep everything liquefied and prevent a recession. And that's what they've done. That's what they've created. They've created this demand that you're talking about that appears to be solid growth when it's not solid growth. And the, the kryptonite for MMT is inflation because, I said this before, you cannot raise interest rates when you're using an MMT policy because if you do, everything collapses. So they have to keep... You know, Japan used um, what's something called YCC, yield curve control, and they basically um, pegged their 10-year at 0% growth in order to prevent any type of a crisis with bonds. We're doing the same thing, but they're not talking about the bond. You know, Japan was pretty, you know, transparent. You know, we're pegging yeah. it at zero. We're not. So when you see the 10-year basically go down from 1.7, which was two weeks ago, all the way down to like 1.36, who's buying those bonds? Who's losing all this money? Well, it's basically, I believe, the Fed in some way or another, which is yield curve control. They're basically pushing it down low. And I see this time and time again. I see it in the gold market. I see it in the silver market. Is they push it way below their comfort zone because they know it's going to come back up. You know, and then when it comes back up, it's a little bit easier for them to control. That's why you saw silver go all the way down under 24. They get it really, really low. And then, OK, now it's back at 25 and they're like and it's still in their comfort zone. So um, I think YCC is already here. But I think the 10 year is going to go over 2 percent. It can't go to three. If it goes to three, basically, you know, everything basically burns up. We basically burn up our printing press. Mm hmm. You know, I, I think it was last year I did read through Stephanie Kelton's The Deficit Myth book about <laughs> modern monetary theory. And, you know, and I will I will give the book credit. Like it was it was very informative with the fundamental thesis behind behind what that what MMT does. Right. But I always felt after I got done reading it, I was like, you know, it was very informative, but she did not provide herself the counter argument. She did not defend a counter argument. There was little information about 
MMT or that type of process leading to not only just inflation, but times in history, global history, that it that same process has led to times of hyperinflation. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's just it it's almost like it just wasn't addressed in the book. And if it was, I mean, it was in my was last year. If it was addressed, it didn't. It was very little to a point where it didn't make any sort of a. You know, I I can't remember that if it it was any sort of a big part of the book. But we've seen this throughout history. Um, You know, my question is, we've got this six handle here on the CPI this week. And we saw precious metals, you know, really scream higher off of that after that announcement. But how is it still, has the inflation become a psychological problem? You know, inflation is more of a psychology than it is a, a data point or a number to most people. Is it a psychological problem? And on top of that, has it become a political problem yet? Um, yeah. So before I talk about inflation um, as a psychological or political problem, I just want to mention about MMT, about the danger of it. So the danger of MMT is this, this philosophy that debt doesn't matter. Right. That you can basically have, you know, and Kelton even talks about this. You can have a five trillion dollar deficit, five trillion, and it's okay because you uh, have a printing press to pay the interest payments on it. You have a sovereign currency. Yeah, you can. Yeah, we we can pay the interest. We're not going to go broke. That's the fundamental underlying, you know, pillar of the thing. Can you imagine having a five trillion dollar deficit? Um, it's based on the concept that you de- you literally destroy the the market, the the free market, because in order to have a five trillion dollar deficit, you have to control interest rates. You cannot allow interest rates to go higher, right? So it's fundamentally based on this concept that the government can control the economy. It's a new philosophy. It's an experimental economic philosophy. It really harbors back to what, to basically, what the Soviet Union tried to do, where the basically the government controls the economy. But they want, they think that they they can somehow do it uh, differently than with the Soviet Union, the, the centralized control. The whole the whole thing is just totally insane. It's it's just off the off the charts. The, the, once you start down that slippery path of saying that debt doesn't matter, your deficits just get enormous, and your overall debt just gets enormous. And eventually, you destroy you destroy the free market, which we're doing right now. You destroy the free market, and once you destroy the free market, then what do you do? You literally collapse and start over. So that's MMT. Okay, we're done with none of that. Uh, let's talk about inflation from you know political issue or a psychological issue. Uh, to me, um, it's it, it, it's neither of those. I'm just being quite honest with my answer. What you know, when inflation really uh, hit the rubber hits the road, is when businesses basically are going or they're basically their cost. Um, they cannot raise prices fast enough to keep to keep growth going. So businesses basically both large corporations, medium size and small, basically take it on the chin because um, their whole model starts breaking down. 
the, the, the cost of them basically creating their products goes up. They can't pass on the cost fast enough, so their, their sales go down, um, and everything starts basically slowing down, and, and then you go into a recession, and then that's, that's kind of what inflation does. Inflation basically causes recessions. I mean, if you go back and look at um, the recession we had in the late early 70s and the late 70s, which was the last time we had uh, basically inflationary crisis. Uh, the recession of 1979 was probably the worst recession that we've had since World War II. Um, it was absolutely brutal. Um, and it lasted quite a while. I mean, Reagan didn't basically get us out of that until I think 82. So it was basically a three-year recession, um, you, know, with, you know, and high interest rates. It was, br it was a brutal time. Um, we, we actually had um, bond, pr bond price, bonds were up to 16%. Can you imagine a 10-year bond at 16%? <laughs> I think it actually got the 30-year. I think the 30-year was at 16%. Um, yeah, so those are the last time we had serious inflation and we had serious re recessions come out of it. I really feel that we're going into recession and it's going to be inflation-induced. And... And I don't, and I, and I think that this this reset. I don't think we're going to collapse. I don't think we're going to have a depression. The reason why is because of technology. Because technology is, you know, it's, you know, we have we have used technology for so much stuff that makes us productive. So I and I think that the technology will basically prevent a depression. Um, and also. Um, uh, MMT. I think that MMT, the idea that to prevent a depression, you have to flood the market with money will be with us. So they won't allow, you know, a depression because they will flood the money. So we will have, I think we'll have, uh, you know, basically inflation and deflation both simultaneously. But I do think the money supply is going to keep expanding because of MT, which will re replace it. So we're, I think what we're going to get for the next three years is a muddling process. And we're, we're basically return Japanese. So if you look at Japan throughout the 1990s, their economy basically was flatlined. They had no growth. And their, 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 their market, their stock market peaked in 1989 and at 47,000 the Nikkei, and, and we're we've never gotten back above 30,000, I don't believe. And I think the same thing is going to happen to us, but we're, I don't think we're going to crash like the Nikkei did. We're, but we're going to muddle, so we're going to go mm -hmm. down, and we're not going to get new highs. We're just going to get stuck, and then people are going to get really turned off that the stock market's basically not returning any returns, and they're going to stop buying stocks. And that will make it, you know, the stock market will be kind of a laggard and, you know, I think Wall Street will kind of shrink and, you know, we're gonna, you're going to have a recession on Wall Street. They lay off a lot of people and we go into this um, basically the same thing in the late 70s. We go into this kind of this stagflation. Um, what was the term under the Jimmy Carter era? Malaise. We're going to have a period of malaise for the next three years. So that's what I'm expecting. I do want to ask you a little bit about. I know you are you're an investor in some cryptocurrencies, and you tweet about it from time to time. But you're also uh, an investor in precious metals, gold and silver. And I kind of wanted to pick your brain a little bit about 
the balance here because it seems, you know, on the surface, there's a lot of push and pull between these two types of, of um, investment classes. And I'm, for one, don't believe it has to be one or the other. I think there's places for both of them. But on the topic of Bitcoin here, uh, a little bit of volatility this week. Are you concerned that any sort of steep correction or maybe even just drop out of the stock market would pull value out of cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's possible that that Bitcoin and the cryptos um, get pulled down a little bit in this upcoming correction that we have. Because I think that we're going to get a correction here in the next heck, the next week or the next six six weeks. And I think that correction will be, you know, somewhere around 5%. It's my expectation. could be as much bad as 10 over time. And during that correction, I think cryptos will get hit because that's usually what happens. But that said, um, I'm very bullish um, about crypto. And I think people, especially in the gold and silver, um, you know, investors, people in gold and silver have always been somewhat iconoclastic people who have basically been very conservative, you know, and, and Bitcoin is not really a conservative investment. It's it's a very you know speculative. I mean, you have mining stocks, yeah, they're speculative, but you're kind of betting that the system's going to break down. So from that, my point is, gold and silver are kind of a hedge, and and, and crypt, crypto is not really perceived as a hedge because it's basically kind of this far out radical. You know, we've never had it had it before and it, you know I, I know if I, if I go back to 2016 before I got involved in Bitcoin I before I did any research on it I thought that it was pie in the sky fantasy because you can't create private money you know the, the government's not going to let you create private money that's so that's what how Bitcoin started it was basically private money and so I was very very you know skeptical of it skeptical but I'm actually a technology guy. I worked in IT for 20 years. I mean, that's that's where my degree was. I was management information system. I started out as a programmer my first five years of my career. So when I did the research on Bitcoin in 2016, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe what I was reading. It's like, to me, it was a miracle. Mm -hmm. It was a miracle that, 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 that Satoshi had created something that was basically flawless. The first thing that I recognized when I did my deep dive on it was that you can't turn it off. And that's what we've come to know. And that's what we've come to know. You can't turn it off. So if you can't turn it off, that means that all you need is one country, one, to keep it alive. 99% of the countries in the world could outlaw it. And this one country would have it all to themselves, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's, you know... There's only has like three flaws. Um, you can't turn it off. So, okay, so then if you can't turn it off, what are its flaws? Flaw number one would be something come, comes around that's better than Bitcoin. But that's almost impossible because of Bitcoin's governance model. And most people don't even know what is a governance model. Well, a governance model is like a management team. You know, a, a, a governance model is how you run your business. So Bitcoin has this really, really unique governance model that's impossible to clone. And what its, what its unique governance model is, is it's fully decentralized. In other words, no single group 
can influence the direction of Bitcoin. That is so historical, so unbelievable. It's like a miracle that it even exists, that that governance model exists. It's, it's mind blowing. So it, it literally has no competition because of its governance model. So how in the world is somebody going to come along and compete against it if nobody can basically create a cloned governance model? That's number two. So, okay. So then what else can break it? Regulations, government regulations. So what that comes down to is what country you live in. So in the United States, the odds are they're probably not going to outlaw it. But if you live in, you know, uh, basically a country that has a kind of a, you know, third world country that's kind of, you know, that's kind of liberal, you know, they might, you know, they might shut it down on you. Um, depending on, you know, it depends on the country. I mean, you, you could see maybe Europe, the EU might shut it down or Switzerland might shut it down, something like that. It's really easy for a government to shut it down on their own. Um, but, and so that's your risk, depending on what country you live in. Um, the other flaw, the other possibility that could kill Bitcoin is quantum computing. Um, quantum computing is probably the best argument for not owning Bitcoin. But the problem is, is that quantum computing, we don't know how powerful it's going to get. Right now, quantum computing cannot break Bitcoin. But in five years, in 10 years, it's a possibility. Uh, they say that they're, they're, they're basically going to come up with ways to prevent it. But we don't know that. So it's, for me, the biggest threat, you know, those are the biggest threat to Bitcoin. And the other thing that, that, that people that, you know, kind of the gold and silver crowd don't really... Um, acknowledge is that the blockchain has evolved into new technologies to the point where the blockchain has created new types of databases, um, these distributed ledger um, technologies that are not really blockchain, like, and they're not necessarily crypto, they are not cryptocurrencies, they're databases. Um, and so you have these opportunities to invest in technology and make money. Um, and there's, whole, there's a whole array of you know, these different companies out there with these different use cases. To, so to just ignore crypto, I think, is a mistake um, because there's so much opportunity for making big alpha, which is the reason why I got into gold and silver in the first place. Yeah. So I think people need to think in crypto in, you know, a kind of with a wider, you know, a wider lens than not just look at Bitcoin, look at crypto cryptocurrency. You need to look at it from a technological standpoint. These are the new technology companies. Yeah, it's, it, 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 we'll, we'll, it, we'll see how it plays out here. I, I'm just really curious, you know, we have this continued discussion, you know, is the crypto, crypto investing taking away money out of precious metals as inflation hedges or, you know, just safekeeping type of positions in the back of bad monetary policy and decision making. Uh, you know, we'll see how we'll see how this continues to play out. Like I said, Don, like I, I firmly believe there's a place for each right now. And you did a great job of really laying out the land and and, and kind of, you know, <laughs> having my back in, in that discussion. I do gotta ask you though about going back to precious metals. We're seeing the major miners uh, in the royal, some of the royalty companies start getting a bit here, not necessarily trickling down to a lot of the developers and junior explorers here. 
but it definitely feels like the tide is swaying here pretty abruptly. Uh, you know, your thoughts here in the as we kind of close down the rest of the year, are you starting to purchase some junior explorers or are you waiting for some sort of you know technical thing on the chart to say to confirm that this is the time to start buying or you know what's your thoughts here on the exploration stocks um so my thought going back to the first of the year was that i basically went bearish on on uh the gold on gold uh late january early february and i basically said that gold is trapped so we're going to get a correction here so we're not breaking out and so start you know, don't be it's, don't buy don't buy any miners unless they're really cheap, and start creating a list. Um, basically, what I call buy the dip list. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at somewhere um, two two. It, my range was like two hundred to two thirty on the HUI, and I was looking targeting around two twenty on the HUI. Um, and once it got to two thirty, I think that was my buy point. We actually went all the way down to two twenty five in September. So my, you know, my my thesis worked, and I basically had this buy the dip list, and I basically started buying, you know, at two thirty, and I basically bought um, bought the dip, um, and I thought, you know, this is it, and we might, you know, I I don't think we're going much lower. We're at two seventy on the HUI right now. Um, we're still super low, but you don't, you have to, there's not a lot of, there are a lot of bargains. I take it back, but you got to be selective. Um, but there's, you know, there's, uh, it's, it's tough to get, um, uh, you know, 270. I mean, it was a lot better to buy, you know, these miners at 200 on the HUI or less. I mean, that was the ideal time to buy. Mm -hmm. So buying it, you know, 270, 250 isn't, you know, it's, it's not a terrible time, not a great time. Um, but will you get an opportunity to buy? So we're at 270. Will you get an opportunity to buy it, you know, at 230 again? It's possible. It's very possible. It could happen. I mean, having to buy the Dipolist is not a bad idea. Looking for opportunities is not, is not a bad idea. I mean, there's a lot of stocks. I'm, you know, I'm still finding, you know, I'm basically more a collector of, of stocks than a trader. <laughs> I mean, I own a, I had a boatload of them. And so it's, for me, instead of selling one stock that I think has less upside and then buying another stock that has more upside, you know, I don't, I don't play that game. So I, I just end up just keep buying, adding and adding and adding um, and finding opportunities. And, and when I find these, you know, for me, when I, I look for five baggers, but I'm also, you know, my ideal stock is a stock that basically prints as a five bagger, but has 10 bagger upside potential. But I'm also now um, looking at stocks that are like really good three baggers that have like, you know, five plus bagger potential. Um, for instance, I bought Monera Alamos this week, which I think is a pretty solid three bagger with five bagger potential. Um, and, you know, I, I talked to the president of their company and, you know, I really liked their uh, their strategy. I was really impressed with what they're doing. And, and there's, you know, there's another stock I looked at, uh, Montage, and, you know, I'm looking at these stocks that just have, you know, you know, Montage has, you know, like a 4 million ounce open pit, you know, it's in, and it's in West Africa, there's a 57, um, 57, uh, oh, there's, it's jumped, when I looked at it, it was 57, now it's up to 61 million, so $61 million market cap, and a 4 million ounce project, and they're going to pr produce 200,000 ounces a year. 
And nobody wants to touch it because it's in Africa and it has a really high CapEx, $490 million CapEx. And they're basically saying, you know, no one's going to, no bank's going to loan them the money. But they have a good team. It's an economic project. Um, you know, stuff like that I look for. I look for, I look, I'm out there, I'm looking for opportunities. Um, you know, and, and when I see these stocks that look really, really solid, you know, I keep adding them. Um, but I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to stop. You know, I think this is kind of the last last chance really because i think that once gold goes over 2000 you know it might not go back under for three years you know this might be off to the races kind of thing oh that's Um, that's a that's a good point there don uh last topic here i want to get your thoughts here obviously we've been reporting a lot of mergers and acquisition news lately yeah uh latest new crest coming in and buying predium yeah Uh, there's been some jvs out of the red lake area from barrack that we've reported on and had discussions on uh, you know, it, it seems like every week there's a pretty significant deal yeah. being announced over the last month. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're a shareholder of the company being acquired, I can see why you'd be a little bit frustrated. Like, why are we selling now? Because it feels like we're now just kind of breaking out of this correction, c- correctionary, tr- correctionary trend. Uh, but also there's significance to the timing of this. You know, give me your thoughts here on this. This I, I don't know if it's a seasonality or just this trend of mergers and acquisitions throughout the space. Well, actually, um, I, I basically write down each each time there's a merger, and we've averaged three a month uh, pretty much for this whole year. I think hmm. so a lot of them have been smaller. Uh, we had some more, you know, uh, kind of big ones like Kirkland Lake and Agnico Equal, and then the Newcrest Predium. Those are kind of you know high high. Um, uh, visual or whatever. I mean, everybody knows the na- those names, but we've had you know quite a quite a few. Like Fiori was a real quality company. They got taken out. You had Rocks Gold, quality company, get taken out. Um, it's basically been about three a month. We've been averaging about three a month, um, and I think it's going to continue. I think it might go up to four a month next year. So um, you know, we're going to keep seeing these and. You know, they totally uh, make sense for these buyers. Um, you know, Agnico Eagle, I mean, you know, these are really, you know, fantastic acquisitions. So you look at Agnico Eagle, you know, look what they picked up with Kirkland Lake. They didn't pay a penny for it. It's, you know, it's a merger of equals. So Agnico Eagle basically acquires Kirkland Lake for nothing. And Kirkland Lake has one of the most pristine balance sheets of any major out. They do. They have the most pristine. They have zero debt. They got... 700 million in cash, um, you know, and they have low cost. I mean, you talk about a beautiful acquisition from Biognico Eagle. That is one there for the books. Um, you know, I, I wasn't really happy with it, but Agne- it makes Agnico Eagle very strong going forward. Basically, Agnico Eagle now, you know, their free cash flow is just unbelievable. They're going to have a really good dividend. So it'll, it'll get approved because, you know, it's a good, you know, between the – the combination of the two companies makes a great company, right? But I think that Kirk that uh, Kirk and Lake would out would have outperformed Agnico Eagle. But you know, I I really didn't. I would have preferred Kirk and Lake staying alone. I mean, Kirk and Lake was going to a hundred dollar stock. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. So you know, they were they were actually getting stronger as a company. Um, the timing was beautiful for Agnico Eagle. You can tell there's smart people behind it. Um, now we go to Newcrest Predium. Here's another one. It was just a beautiful acquisition by Newcrest. Uh, Predium 
um, they just like Kirk and Lake, everything they've been hitting all the cylinders, they've been improving. Um, their 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 debt has been slowly going down. They've been cleaning up their balance sheet. Their their drill results have been really good. Their uh, numbers, their um, quarterly numbers have been really good. They keep hitting their number. They keep hitting their their, their targets. Um, Predium was getting better, and you know Newcrest is basically taking them out for you know it's a combination 23, 29 percent. It's kind of hard. We it's kind of hard to know the actual takeout number. Let let say the average is 25 percent. Um, and, you know, I think that Agni Eagle Eagle should have had to pay 25% for Kirk and Lake. So, you know, it, 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 this one's going to get approved as well. I, I'm actually, um, you know, I own Predium and, you know, I wasn't really super excited about this. But I think Newcrest is, is undervalued. So, um, you know, and it's really, a, a, you can tell they were undervalued because they, their stock really isn't taking the hit. That a lot of times these companies really take a hit when they do an acquisition. But basically, I think shareholder people are recognizing that um, this was accretive, even though paying the 25 percent um, that New and Newcrest is is a cheap stock. So New Newcrest has a three percent dividend. I think if you buy Newcrest or you keep your shares with Predium, that you're going to end up with a five, six, seven percent uh, dividend uh, over after after Newcrest goes up in value. So I'm going to keep my shares in Newcrest for the for the dividend. I think Newcrest is going to be a dividend monster. I, I you know, I, I like Newcrest better than Barrick or Newmont. Um, yeah, they gave they gave you some options in that deal. Like you know, it's a as shareholders, you had some options of what you wanted to do, which was well, cool. it's kind of misleading. They they basically say that you can either select shares or cash. The default is half and half. But the misleading part is that they're going to force you to take one. They're going to force you to take some cash if if everybody wants shares. They're not giving. They're only. It's. They're only going to give away fifty percent of their shares. So I don't know how in the heck they're going to do it. That's why they call it prorated. So basically, everybody goes in and, and says, "Okay, this is how many. This is how many people want shares. And if too many people say they want shares, they're going to force you to take cash. I want all shares." And and so that's why I say it's misleading. Um, so now, so that's what it is. It, it's basically 50-50, but they're only going to give away 50% of their shares. So they're hoping that only 50% pe- people want shares. So we'll see how that works out. Now, one point I want to make about both of these acquisitions is I think that both of these, um, I think that Agnico Eagle and Newcrest are basically getting great deals. I think there's a possibility that somebody else comes in and makes a bid um, because they're such good acquisitions i mean so we're gonna this is where we're gonna the rubbers gonna hit the road if companies are really aggressive on acquisitions somebody else is going to come make an offer for these because they're getting really good deals here so i'm hoping at least one of them we get a counter offer so that's when you know that's when you know the m&a is in action when these companies start getting counter offers mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. see how that goes but i i, I they're both of these are going to get approved i have no doubt it's just a matter of do they get counter offers uh, Don, let's let's leave it at that. It's been great to catch up with you. It's been it's been quite a while since we've had you on. But I mean, the the market has has changed. Uh, it definitely feels that way. And I think you know earlier in the year when you and I uh, discussed the gold market, uh, you had some concerns and rightfully so. And it just kind of turned out and played the way you kind of expected it to. So it's a pleasure to get you back on and kind of feel that the that the winds have changed here. 
but uh, until next time, my friend, I really uh, I look forward to having you back on, hopefully in the new year, and see how things are continue to play out. Not only in the uh, in the mining market and the good precious metals market, but maybe we'll see how things play out in the crypto market as well. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for having me on. I, I had one final comment. Sure. That is, I, I, I insinuated earlier that I said 2022 is basically going to be kind of a, you know, a down year for the economy, up year for gold. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that 2020 and 2021 were kind of a warm up for what's happening in 2022. And the reason why is because 2020, 2021, you had this huge injection of stimulus into the economy, which is coming to an end. Now the economy has to stand on its feet. And I really believe there's going to be no return to normal. And that's it's really going to show itself. I don't know if it's going to be first quarter or second quarter. But I think this my philosophy that no return to normal and that you have this bifurcation in the country that is really going to kind of intensify, right? You have this political division that's not going to resolve itself. You've got to pull it. it's, it's an election year, which is going to make it even worse. This bifurcation is going to be even worse, right? You have this split in the country, the haves and the have-nots, which I think is going to get worse. You have the tension. We're already seeing strikes. I'm not surprised at all by that. I think the strikes are going to continue. So, you know, going into next year, I really think that, you know, look for – Basically, a recession year, uh, not just a recession year, but kind of a transitionary year for America. This is kind of the end of an era, if you will. So we got to, you, basically we're going to see. I think we're going to see an energy crisis. I think gold, oil is going to 100. I think we're going to see a um, food crisis where you see double-digit inflation with food. Um, I don't see rents coming down. Um, I think that 2022 is literally a transition year where gold goes over 2,000. And basically, it's it's basically <laughs> a new era begins. Don, on that note, uh, we'll have to <laughs> we'll have to touch base here, first or second quarter next year, and and see how things are are, are playing out. Uh, thanks for your time, Don. Uh, have a great holiday season for you and uh, your loved ones, and we'll talk to you again in, in 2022. All right. Hey, what, what, I didn't get to plug my website. Are oh, we... please. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> please, go ahead. Goldstock yeah, Data. Yeah, everybody go to uh, goldstockdata.com if you own any mining shares and check out my database. <laughs> there you go. All right, Don, thank you so much. Have yourself a great weekend, my friend. All right, thanks. You too. I am really excited for this next segment of Mining Stock Daily because we are revisiting and chatting with somebody who I've known for ever before the podcast was even an idea. And she is the original uranium, original gangster here in the investment space. It has been far too long, but Fabiana Lara is here. Fabulous Fabiana. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Trevor. You give me way too much credit. <laughs> well, I give credit where credit is due. Uh, you, uh, you were in this uranium trade when literally hardly anybody had interest in it. I and mean, we're talking three, four, five years ago. 
you know, mm-hmm. so let's start this broad context yeah. here. We've seen a renewed interest in uranium, in nuclear energy, on the backs of Sprott coming in on the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, obviously. But, you know, let's revisit this. What were you seeing four or five years ago that really took that long to become into fruition now? (laughs) So I've noticed recently that I am very early to almost everything, you know? I mean, it's not a bad thing. It it depends because I still (laughs) hold the story of, investing in Bitcoin when it was $4 and making zero money from it. So sometimes it turns out bad because I miss opportunities because I don't stay in them too long. So that is a risk. But with uranium specifically, what happened and what I could see, and it wasn't my own research, I was just listening to people like Rick Rue, you know, who we all listen to and we, we have access to his opinions and other people's opinions on podcasts, on video, et cetera. And it's been public for, you know, the better part of a decade. What I saw was that the story was so watertight that even if it took a long time to pan out, it didn't matter because in the mining game, you have a few different options. And I knew that I wasn't made for the exploration game, right? I am not interested in geology whatsoever. So it's nice when, you know, I pick a stock that hits something, but it's really rare because I don't want to put in the time to go through the learning curve in order to know what is the best company that has the best shot from a geological perspective. So what I want to do instead is look for narratives that have to do with something other than the actual finding of the minerals. And so with uranium, it was either, okay, it's being produced at, you know, uh, at a, at a cost of, I don't know, anywhere from, they say 30 to, you know, 40 bucks, it's being sold in the market for $20, right? I mean, supply will not um, expand until there is at least 50, 60, dollars as a spot price and so eventually it's it's a last man standing game and eventually there will be the day when we would need to have higher prices like that's it (laughs) that that's the whole story and so i thought this has to happen and if it has to happen i'd much rather go for the long-term play that's more certain for me than a lottery ticket. I am not really interested in lottery tickets when it comes to the exploration game because I'm just not good at it. And I'm not quick enough to to trade in and out of stuff. And so I had to play to my strengths. This, so when you saw the news that Sprott was taking this ATM and, you know, taking it to the market, I mean, when you first got that first news, was that... You know, how significant was that for you at the time? Did you think that that was really going to be the game changer in this very tight, very tight uranium market? Or were you kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Let's see what happens. Listen, let's just say there was a lot of wine had in this household when that piece of news came out. I am not joking. I live in Portugal, so wine here is very cheap. And, you know, you can have it for every meal, not a problem, Um, which could be a problem in another so, but the, I think the instant reaction was like, 
this is it. This is what's going to start moving the needle in the spot market so that it draws attention to uranium as an opportunity. And that gets the wheel going faster and faster. And it's very clear that when they're in the market raising money and buying, the spot price goes up. It, it, we can see it every day, right? And yeah, immediately I knew that this was going to be a game changer because, you know, they came out and, and said, we're going to buy. And it actually goes back to a video that I saw probably 10 years ago of Eric Spratt. And he didn't say in in this way, in this manner, uh, but he basically wanted to, co- uh, to corner the silver market. Obviously, the silver market is much more difficult to corner because you have Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, it's lots of paper silver flying around there, as we all know, much more difficult. Um, and it seems like um, he found a market that he could have you know, more influence in. That's a smaller market that he could uh, see the discrepancies in what the price is today and what it should be according to, you know, just economics and actually fix it himself, so to speak. And that brings, you know, it, it just lifts all boats if you're in uranium and almost everything that that, that I've seen um, in uranium for the last year has been incredible incredibly positive and i think part of it's just luck you know it's like nuclear's time has come and also there's lots of good news for uranium in and of itself so it's it's almost like a reverse a perfect storm for for uranium so so here's the conundrum here and I, I, before i get to that conundrum i want to chat with you but i do want to say you're absolutely right with that metaphor that that move lifted all boats because Spot price rose. A lot of the uranium equities, explorers, developers obviously rose. They continue to rise equity price even as the spot prices kind of taking a breather here after multiple weeks mm-hmm. of getting double digit gains here. So the equities are also getting a rise. And there is more, uh, you know, eyes politically and, you know, from the average investors looking at uranium, obviously that's coming in. We're also getting more news from the utilities, you know, global utilities. We're hearing news of China wanting to build, I mean, a lot of new nuclear reactors, more than that's actually up and running now in the entire world, which is interesting. There's news from, uh, you know, there in Europe, France talking about the small module reactors to kind of compensate with their current nuclear utilities as well. Uh, even here in the United States, the the Democratic and, and Biden administration, there's a little bit of talk about support for nuclear energy. But this all comes at a cost. And this is the conundrum, Fabi, is we have spent so much money and we create so much money and things are getting so expensive. I don't have to talk about the inflation narrative right now, but this is going to come at a cost. Will those costs hinder or slow down nuclear energy development? and maybe put a lid on the investment space? The reason why I don't believe that is, is because I feel like we live in a world where narrative trumps logic and math 
and the cost of things. <laughs> we make decisions. That's the, that's the that's the end of the conversation. We Let's make decisions <laughs> based on what is going to be more palatable, what is going to get more votes, what is going to you know, make us look better or make us not look bad as a country, as, you know, a province, as a state, whatever. And so because it cost doesn't seem to factor into, you know, most governments decision making, I don't think it's going to be an issue because at the end of the day, you cannot have a modern functioning society without lots of electricity. And we need lots of electricity. You know, we're talking about electric cars, like forget about it. Unless we grow our electrical grid by a lot, it's it's not even going to happen. And so because it's what the people want and politicians need to appease the public, I think it's, you know, that that's going to take care of itself, basically. So where does this market go from here? Where's the further upside? Is it going to be on the back of spot buying the physical i mean i was reading earlier this week i saw the latest update um hard to keep track issued. isn't it I, it is every day it's something new but i think this was from wednesday i believe uh, they issued eight hundred thirty thousand physical trust units which raised just under 10 million dollars used to stack another hundred and fifty thousand pounds of u308 that was from one day yeah and that's and I, I feel like that's a low number compared to what I'd seen in the last couple of months. So they've actually bought um, roughly 20 million pounds of uranium since they, they've started this thing. And um, I don't remember what the price was when they started, but I know that it went up to 50 then retraced back to low 40s. And now we're sitting at about 45 today. Uh, yeah, they move the market. And the thing about that is that this is the game that I love, um, not just investing in the fundamental story, but in the psychological story behind the fundamental story. So it's one thing to say, okay, um, Sprout is going to go out and buy uranium. Cool. That's good. It lifts all boats. We love, we love it. But there's also the fact that because they came out and announced that they're going to do that. More people are trying to now front run them, therefore raising the price further, uh, therefore <laughs> lifting all bolts even higher. So I thought, and I think everybody who's um, a half honest speculator wants to get in really, really early, uh, but not too early so that you don't have to sit and wait like I did for years for this thing to happen, but early enough that you get a really good price. But ultimately, if we're honest, we want our pick to become the ultimate bubble, right? We want it to explode. Uh, you know, we want to speculate. We have crypto as competition. And so we're like kind of salty about that whole situation. We want to make <laughs> massive returns. And I always thought that uranium was going to do that because, you know, it's it's the old bubble herd mentality, everything. Everybody thinks that it's going to the moon. Everybody piles in. It's too much, too soon. It explodes and dies. End of story. But what's been happening now, especially with um, what's happening with China, what's happening with um, even plants in the US that were supposed to shut down, getting extended, 
and France coming out. Um, Germany is still a big question mark, but you know, lots of European countries coming out and saying, you know, we want, we need more nuclear. Um, and yet China saying, <laughs> I had to go back and reread the piece of news. China saying that um, they want to build at least 150 um, new reactors. So it's not we're going to maybe build 150, is we need at least 150, which is more than what has been built worldwide during my whole lifetime. I'm 35 years old. So this is um, sort of a nuclear revolution that I don't think anybody factored in when they decided to get into uranium two, three, four years ago or longer. And so what it's giving us, it's it's giving us legs to maybe see the price of uranium and nuclear and uranium-related um, things just last longer. I'm not sure. I was completely sure that this was going to be a really fast bubble, just like it happened in 2007. I'm not so sure now. I think that we might actually rise maybe more slowly. Uh, maybe we'll go up really quickly and the crash, but then continue and, and pick up again. Um, I don't see this ending in the next year. I don't see this ending in the next two years because at the end of the day, all of these plants that are, are planned and being built, they're going to need their real stuff and they're going to come to the miners. They're going to come to, you know, they're, they're going to need contracts and the contracts are, are, are going to have to make sense for the miners that have been bleeding money for how many years now, 10, maybe longer. Uh, so my thinking of, you know, that big bubble, I'm not so sure that, that this is going to happen anymore. It might be more of, you know, what tech stocks did from, you know, let's say 2009 to like just recently, you know, they just keep rising and rising and rising and rising and rising. And then eventually, you know, it becomes a little bit too ridiculous, but I'm, I'm not so sure that we're just going to explode and burst. Uh, the ingredients for bubble making isn't necessarily there in this market. Like, you know, you can, obviously you can see it in the general stock market, specifically the tech stocks. I mean, you have, you don't, you're starting to see marketability in the uranium sector. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the first, first step. Uh, we have easy money, you know, low cost of capital for more money. So that's, that's here, but it's not getting directed towards uranium quite yet. Not much. But then you also don't have the fervor and complete speculation that you would see in these big tech stocks. That's definitely not here in uranium. So I, I'm with you. Like I think we haven't even started seeing the foundation of an exponential bubble-like chart pattern in this. I think this. Is, I think it, I feel like it's a really good spot. But let me on the backs of that. Let me ask you: How have you been playing this? Have you been taking profits? Have you been? Taking some money off the table, you've been holding. It's been a long, been a long hold for you. You know, I I got a, a message from my broker just the other day. He's like, um, "You own a lot of this one stock. Do you want to, you know, maybe start taking profits?" I'm like, "Nah." Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I am not considering taking um, profits yet. 
eventually it will have to happen and heads up when it does happen you know nobody's a trader for taking profits so let's let's be a little bit more mature here i know the uranium um community is is very tight and so there is that sort of herd mentality among us um but i just because the story is getting better and better and better and better if i sell my uranium stocks i think the only thing that i could put it to is maybe into gold and silver you know because i see that as cheap nowadays but that would be changing you know changing my i guess my focus from sticking to what i knew was going to happen and seeing it to fruition and starting to i guess reset the cycle of okay let's buy low let's let's start buying low again and the smart thing would be for me to actually sell some now and and start doing that but i i just i don't do that very well personally you know um i'm very bad at timing the market so sometimes i just like to you know wait just wait and when i think it's too much when i think it's getting too bubbly or when the story is starting to change uh then i'll, I'll probably start trimming but i'm i just haven't really done much of that so this is a good transition why gold and silver i mean you and i have talked about the precious metals for yeah. a few years now um it feels like we're finally coming out of that what was it 13 14 month hard correction horrible <laughs> it's yeah, just horrible. been miserable yeah. uh, i'm lucky uh, that, you know, that most of my portfolio is in uranium i have some gold and silver but most of it's uranium in uranium otherwise i i'd be wrecked <laughs> as they say yeah but is it is it these in inflation prints that kind of got you kind of leveraging more towards into the precious metals thinking well based on the complete amount of money printing and spending and where central banks are right now, what makes you believe that a metal like gold, which is typically the safe haven, even at 1850 continues to remain cheap? I think it's because everybody hates gold right now. Like it's either, it's either hated or ignored. Um, yeah, like I've never seen sentiment like this, where people who were believers in gold, they're like, nah, gold is an old man's pet rock. <laughs> Let's go to Bitcoin. And that's fine. I mean, they could be completely, completely right. You know, good on them for, for making those profits if they can cash in. But I've never seen such sentiment towards gold of just pure hatred. And I like that. I, I think that's attractive to people who want to get in low. Um, I You didn't see that in uranium per se whenever I got into it. But what you saw in uranium, it wasn't hatred because it wasn't important. Nobody cared about it. But it's the same sort of lack of attention to it that's attractive to me. You know, nobody's talking about gold, you know, um, coming back into you know, world reserve currency status or anything like that. People are talking about, no, crypto is the future. And I completely get all of that. I completely get it. And I actually believe in some of that, you know, of, of the crypto rhetoric. But just we're not going to wake up five years from now and gold is going to be worth nothing. I, I don't see that, right? I don't see a world where that's possible. 
you drop a, a gold coin on the ground, somebody's going to pick it up and have a really good day. Mm-hmm. They'll have to explain to somebody that it's worth something. We know that it's worth something. And yeah, the sentiment is, is looking really attractive to me. I do want to ask you, and this has been a question, a, the, you know, I've, I've got nothing but a huge amount of respect for you. Uh, because you come from a different place. I mean, not only are you one of the few females in this resource space that I actually get to talk to and pin ideas towards and get your feedback from time to time. Uh, but, you know, you've got this swagger to you. And it's almost, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, the, the resource world, it, it, it is really a man's world. And But, you know, obviously, the, this, the, the uh, women are starting to make a bigger bigger place in it, which is great to see. But from your standpoint, do you come at it at a different angle? Like, do females, do women come at resource investing at a different angle? Or is it just, you know, you, you see it because this is the life you decided to live. And so you're seeing things differently than, you know, what other women throughout the world might be doing with their in financial careers? That's an excellent question because I don't know. And the reason yeah. um, why I don't know is because I don't know many other women in this business um, obviously there are many, but proportionately it, you know, it's a very small crowd. And the thing with that is that I, and I'm sure that other women would probably confirm this, that when we're back with our girlfriends, you know, the ones who don't invest, who are not into all this crazy stuff, uh, we can't really even explain what we do, why we do it. It's almost like we're made of different stuff. And so sometimes people ask me, like, what do you think we need to do in order to attract more women? And I don't know because I don't feel um, like I know what they would want in order to be attracted to this. I think I think you either are or you're not. I think you either want to invest, you you have an appetite for risk or you don't. Um, I'm not sure that women would be more attracted to the investing and the speculating part of mining. Obviously, working in mining, you can make an argument that that's something completely different, but the investing and the risk-taking, I think you either have it or you don't. You know, I couldn't convince my husband to do this. (laughs) He doesn't even (laughs) want to know what goes on, right? (laughs) And it's just that he he is, you know, the the guy who wants to save up and and conserve and and just be safe. And I'm like, let's throw throw it all on black. (laughs) Cash is trash, dude. There you go. Uh, Yeah, it it is. It is funny because I because I I I joke with other people, especially with my wife. It's like you know I, I follow these markets. I do my best to read up and educate myself on the big macro picture. But it's like I can't go to a party and be like. There's supply chain shortages because this is the demand the Federal Reserve has created through money printing. It's like nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. Nobody would talk to me the rest of the night. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. I feel you completely. <laughs> so, well, that's, you know, we'll just say, you know, keep, keep the conversation. Don't go to a party. Nobody will like to talk to you. Just listen to the podcast. So we need a social life like too, right? Stuff. Exactly. We need social right. life. And so, and, you know, sometimes you get into such rabbit holes. Um, that it really sucks all your time and energy and you want to learn more, you want to get more involved. And so we need to sometimes kind of unplug from that and have a normal life and not talk about money and investing and speculating because 
it, it can be quite taxing on people around us. You know, family doesn't want to hear about, you know, how much return you're getting on your investments. They don't care. They want you around in your attention. Well, that's the thing. So we spent the last year and a half. It's like you couldn't have a conversation with somebody else that didn't mention COVID or the pandemic. And now I'm finding now you can't have a conversation with somebody else that isn't talking about hard to find goods, you know, products Mm -hmm. because of supply chain bottlenecks or, you know, the the issue at, uh, at ports. But, you know, like people have these concerns of higher prices, but once you take it to the next step of, you know, where it's coming from and and those thoughts and theories is that's when it like really seems to get disenfranchised from the Mm. bigger narrative, right? It's like the simple story is, well, we're just going to blame this on the pandemic and COVID. But the way you and I, people like you and I see it is like the pandemic is obviously has something to do with it, but the, the, the response from the pandemic the financial and economic response has created this demand. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we feel is driving most of us. Now, but once you get to that point of the conversation, it's like people just would rather turn a blind eye. Yeah. <laughs> and most people don't care, really. They only care about and themselves. Most people don't care. And th- this, is why, <laughs> this is why you have bubbles. Because at the end of a bubble, somebody wants to get in at what has already you know, double 10 times. You're like, oh, this is going to happen again. So they put their money in and then the bubble bursts because there's no greater fool than the person who just wants to wants to get in when it's already hot. They want a stock tip. All right. All right. Maybe we should write a uh, one of those bathroom pieces of literature, like <laughs> how a resource investor approaches a social gathering or something. Yes. How to talk <laughs> to normal people. <laughs> how, to, how to talk to normal people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. uh, Fabi, uh, it's really good to see you. And this was a great, great conversation as always. And, you know, uh, tell people how they can follow you uh, on Twitter. You've been a little bit more active lately, finally. So uh, how can people follow up with any any questions for you? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm the next big rush on Twitter. And you can come chat to me. Just uh, don't try to chat me up because I'm married. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have to say this, you know, there have been weird messages, so just need to get that out there. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's a first here on this podcast. There you go. All right, Fab- Fabi, uh, I hopefully you and I can get together for that glass of wine in the coming year. Yeah. Love to see you in person once again. It's been too long. But until that, take care of yourself and thanks again. You too. Thanks, Trevor. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap up this week's Mining Stock Daily. Thanks so much for tuning in day in, day out this week. We'll be back Monday morning with the news briefing bright and early before the market opens. Take care of yourself. Be well. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decision.